Hello, and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. I'm a photographer, art enthusiast, and collector here in Austin, Texas. Hey, thanks for taking the time to have a listen to my new podcast. I've enjoyed creating it and look forward to all the great interviews I will get to do in the coming weeks, months, and maybe even years. My goal with this podcast is to interview artists and gallery owners here in Austin primarily to better understand what they do and why, what they have learned, what's working and what's not, and how to be successful at it and have a fulfilling career. Thanks to my good friend Stan Killian for the intro and outro music. The song is called Elvin's Sight, and it comes from his wonderful album, Unified. This third episode is with Shay Little, the executive director of Big Medium and one of the founders of the East Austin Studio Tour. With the tour coming up soon, it's interesting to hear how it started 14 years ago and where it is now and what the future looks like. Towards the end of our talk, he shares about a new project with generous art that I think will be a great resource for artists that I'm really excited about. Enjoy. Shay Little, thanks for coming on my podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, so... Tell me, what is your current position within Big Medium, and what's, what's the mission? I am the one of the co-founders, and I am currently the executive director of Big Medium. And we have a broad mission. Very very broadly, we are meant to support artists. Mm-hmm. And that it's super broad, so it's hard yeah. to really <laughs> drill into what... The, we can drill into it, but yeah, yeah. it's generally to support artists. Okay. All right. In what ways do you find that it's you've been most successful at supporting artists? So we try to create platforms for artists. Um, and we, we believe we have three very strong platforms that we, we have integrated into most of our programs. Mm -hmm. I think the most successful programs have all three platforms integrated into them. And those platforms are an opportunity to create their work. So we do that through our studio spaces. Okay. Um, we feel like the studio tour, encourages the creation of work because there's nothing like a deadline to make you yeah, make more I, art. I'm in the middle of that myself. Right, right. <laughs> so it's creating work. Um, it's exhibiting work. So the gallery space is one of those opportunities. Yeah. Uh, the studio tour again is that, that time to showcase your work because there aren't enough gallery spaces like we have or even other non-traditional exhibition spaces. Um, they, they vary in range so drastically that we felt like the tour was a great opportunity to provide that to artists because I think a studio space is a great place to show work. Yeah. Or can be. Um, but artists have to exhibit their work. They have to show it and talk about it. And that's the third platform is talking about it, offering those opportunities to discuss your work and network and engage with an audience or with, with peer artists so you can have critical dialogue around your work. Mm -hmm. So that really encapsulates a lot of what the tour was meant to do do was to we had been providing studio space at our Bolm space and we still do here at Canopy and Bolm and we wanted to provide space so you could create your work to exhibit your work and then to discuss and talk about your work mm -hmm. and that's why we feel like the studio tour has a is a great platform and really fits the key of Big Medium and is like the core of Big Medium is that it provides those three different things mm -hmm. and then you started the there's also the West Austin Studio Tour and the Biennial. What are I imagine West is very similar, but what's the Biennial? Yeah, West is pretty much the same. Um, I wouldn't call it the same if I were to oh. <laughs> look at the two. Um, oh, okay. I mean, what's the difference? There's just a, a vast difference in the um, ideology or oh. the practices or the ways in which the audience experiences art on the tour. They're just incredibly different. Wow. <laughs> I was okay. surprised. I by didn't that. realize that. Well, there's a, there's a sensibility to the work that is different. So artists on the east side, it's a little bit edgier and a little more raw. Mm -hmm. um, I, I use the term younger, not by actual age, but mm -hmm. by maybe artistic accomplishment and willingness to take risk. Okay. The east side's a little younger and the west side's a little more established, a little more traditional and conservative with their approaches to work. And these are 
yeah. wildly yeah. <laughs> broad stereotypes that <laughs> right. don't apply to everyone okay. by any means whatsoever. But in general, that's the sensibility of the, of those tours. And then the way that they impact the city are, is drastically different. Oh. I mean, East has had a long, long-standing relationship with the city and has generated a, a big following, and it's sort of a household name mm-hmm. in some sense. Um, West is not. So there's already an inherent larger audience for East. But East happens in primarily a residential part of the city, and you can feel the impact of the people out on the tour. Mm. Um, and West happens in the most developed portions of, or primarily in some very developed portions of Austin, and you just, you feel, you don't feel the tour as much as you do um, with East. Hmm. And what about the biennial? So the biennial, it came about through a collaboration or partnership with Arturo Palacios and John Lawrence. Mm-hmm. And we, we as myself, Janice Weck, and Joseph Phillips, my fellow co-founders mm-hmm. um, for Big Medium, the five of us got together and talked about the idea of doing a big, broad, statewide show. And we initially started with like five counties surrounding Travis. Mm-hmm. And then just said, like, let's let's go really big and do a, a Texas biennial. And we, you know, the Texas has such cachet just in and of itself, but we knew that saying a biennial does the same thing in the art world. There's a lot of cachet around it and it has, it's heavy, it's weighted. Um, and we like that. We like the fact that we're going to be a bunch of young upstart artists doing sort of a grassroots version of a biennial, non-institutional, not in a major art hub, and at the time, we were just becoming very aware of the fact that Houston and Dallas, and even San Antonio to a lesser extent, did not think of Austin as an art city very much. Yeah. So we thought, well, why don't we do our own biennial mm-hmm. and we'll just do it. Yeah. And that's what we did. So in 2005, we started the first biennial. And the basic platform was, and still is, a, um, a survey of the current contemporary art making practices of the state. Yeah. Um, traditionally and mostly done through an open call platform. Occasionally in the past it's been done through invited artists or other methods of selecting artists to be a part of the exhibition. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've changed our curator or jury process from 12 to five to single curators um, you have people, don't you have people traveling around the state too, looking for yeah visiting so, artists? So the broad spectrum is look at the state, look at art in, in Texas and show us what you think is interesting. Mm-hmm. We don't want to call it the best or the most valued or the most commercial. or what, It's just like a curator or a group of curators um, selection of what is interesting in the state currently. Mm-hmm. So in 2009, Michael Duncan drove around the state and he did our first road trip to get out there and really engage and help kind of break down some of those Austin centric, um, stereotypes and barriers that we had built up ourselves because it was very Austin focused. Yeah. Um, in 2011, Virginia Rutledge came in and she did, I think an even grander job of breaking it down and really embracing the state and getting us out of Austin and making the state feel like it, it had some control or some, ownership over the Texas Biennial. Hmm. Um, And then this year in 2017, Leslie Moody Castro has gone even further and taken what Michael Duncan did in 2009, which was a relatively, I mean, it was a large scale road trip, but nothing to the extent that Leslie did. She did this massive, Hmm. I forget, seven week trip around the state visiting 200 plus artist spaces and, nearly 80 arts organizations across the state who we partner with to help talk about the state of the art and the Texas Biennial. Yeah. So it was, it was a wild... Wow, that's very ambitious. Very ambitious. <laughs> and how did that go? How did it go? Because it just happened, right? You're uh, kind of the opening for it. Yeah, it just happened. Um, I think the road trip went well, really well. It, it seems like a, a, a crucial part of the Biennial that we need to keep doing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no better way to connect with your fellow Texans than to drive to their city and say hello face to face. And it also informs the 
the curatorial habits of the curator and probably as as an organization as well as big medium i joined leslie on a on one little stint in galveston and was just super interested by the artists who we saw talked with a few artists that i would love to show in the gallery space here and um just those connections that opportunity to say hi and meet face to face is so powerful over the the typical email exchange how did she find these 200 artists? Did it, I, maybe you mentioned that, but did they submit to be visited or did she just have to research that herself? So that she, they all submitted. She stuck very closely to the traditional idea of the open call being the okay. platform. Right. So all the artists in the exhibition were selected from the open call and she had a few weeks prior to her road trip of the call having closed to research artists, to create a short list, and then to talk to our nearly 80 partner organizations and get their feedback if they had other artists that she thought she should go see. Mm. So from, from those two sources, she went out and did the road trip and identified the ones she wanted to go see. Mm-hmm. So now that the, you had the biennial celebration or kind of like the big exhibit recently, and how did that go? I thought it went great. It was a big It's like the culmination off. of the whole project, right. essentially. Yeah, it's the big unveiling. It was yeah. the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought it was great. The city came out and responded. I think the state, in a lot of ways, I saw a lot of people that I've known for a long time and some newcomers who I've recently met from across the state who drove into Austin. And that, to me, is success. We want to provide an opportunity for the state to convene I think in the future we'd love to to deepen that engagement so that there's other levels of convening rather than just hanging out for an opening celebration, panel discussion, symposium type stuff. But in terms of getting people to come together and talk about a current exhibition and have it be about the state and the state to some sense in some sense coming together, it, it we did that and it was great. So how did you end up in Texas? I mean, I don't think you've always lived here, but it, I'm sure that you're probably have gotten pretty attached to it as uh, spending so much time here and all the art here and everything. Well, I'm actually a born and raised Austinite. Oh, you are? Oh, weird. <laughs> I spent four years away in New York for, oh, okay. for art for, school. So For some reason, I was thinking you were from the Northeast. That's weird. Nope. Just went to school there. And, oh, okay. Yeah. I hope my Texan blood can forgive me for leaving for four <laughs> years. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I um, grew up here and for some reason went to school and the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It was a kind of on a whim. I've always wanted to be an artist. I mm-hmm. grew up being an artist and pursued that extensively through high school, trying to avoid as many classes that had to do with math and science. As <laughs> I, could. Well, I love math and science, but maybe it was more literature and history I tried to avoid. But yeah. anyway, I was really focus on art and struggled my way through school and found myself down that art mm-hmm. art school path and just followed it and went and did four years and it's probably pretty exciting like going to new york to go yeah, to school totally I mean. exciting i mean i'm a i am a texan by heart and new york city's amazing but it's just not my pace yeah and so i knew that i had to I didn't know that I, I didn't know that I had to come back to Austin and do something. I just knew that I had to leave New York City, and Austin was the place that I was going to just go back to and land and see what happened. And quickly upon returning, got into living into a warehouse space, and okay. that slowly turned into big medium. All right, yeah. Well, let's back up a little bit, uh, just because you mentioned it. Tell me about being a kid wanting to be an artist kind of when did you first start having those ideas or how early do you remember being into art or knowing what art was or maybe some of your influences growing up yeah it's funny because my mom just recently sent me a photo of me as an eighth grade or no eight-year-old me completing one of those school silly school assignments was like what do you want to be and i drew a picture of myself as an artist oh wow <laughs> quintessential beret and paintbrush <laughs> and easel and, yeah and i having kids now i i know that you just like throw things out left and right and yeah you never a know fireman or an mind. astronaut right, or whatever right but you knew uh, somehow. i guess so 
Um, yeah, I, I just grew up in a very open family that allowed me to explore my interests. Um, they're very much more on the science and engineering side of things. Mm-hmm. I'm a black sheep if there is such a thing in my family. I went to art school and the rest of my family all went to the University of Texas and got <laughs> engineering oh, yeah. degrees and they're all very science oriented. But I, I do see the, a very strong correlation between art and science, mm-hmm. at least in the way that humans think and use their brains. They're, they're in very similar realms. Mm-hmm. So I do see that I have, didn't fall too far from the tree, but were they always worried about you then being a starving artist or something or? Yeah. <laughs> I think mainly financially, were yeah. they always going to be picking up the bill? Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that now they're proud that they invested in that path and it's now doing better. I mean, I, th- I don't think that I could be making, or I, I'll change that. I don't think I want to be making my living off of art. And I made that decision that I don't want to have to sell my art to make ends meet. Yeah. So that's why I've shifted gears to go into big medium and embrace the idea of supporting the art and still being able to make art as a hobby, but not have it be my career. And I can support other artists who want to pursue that and make it their career. That's a, that's a really interesting, um, I think challenge or choice that a lot of artists have, whether they can, whether they're supposed to pursue it as their life and make a living at it or, or is it okay to have a side job and that's not somehow like diluting what you could potentially do or you're selling out or something like that. It's a really challenging decision. I think it is. It is. And I I feel like a lot of artists, especially in Austin where the market's not like it is in New York and LA, we have to have the other jobs. Yeah. There has to be some other source of income. It can't just be this art thing. So you struggle with that balance and try to figure out how do you, if, if making art for a living is your ideal, you're constantly balancing that. It's a balancing act to figure out how to provide you enough time to do that, but then still do the things that give you the money that makes ends meet. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I still, I still do make art and still do get paid for art occasionally, but it's, it is just much more of a, it just comes to me and in those few rare moments where I can just accept work and, and do things on commission Mm -hmm. and not have to make a body work and try to more or less move a a commodity. That's where I kind of feel like I'm on a, I'm in my ivory tower with my purest ways. (laughs) It's not, I I would never think that the art world should be just like purely about the art. It's not about the money, but I did have a hard time grappling with like, how do you make art and then also sell it without letting the market drive your creative practice? Mm -hmm. Because inherently in that system, you are going to make stuff that sells Yeah, because you have to. And that changes the way you make art. And so I, I, I was really coming to terms with that. And we, so to back up myself, the group, Joseph Phillips, Janice Beck, and myself created um, a collaborative group called Sotolitas. Mm-hmm. And our collaborative group is what then eventually formed Big Medium. And we were making art and selling art and doing rather well for a bunch of young artists who mm-hmm. were working together and I felt very comfortable creating collaboratively and selling collaboratively. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I mean, we, what does that well, mean? Our, collaboratively. <laughs> yeah. Our, our definition was, um, or it's up to interpretation. Okay. And we interpreted it as, um, allowing ourselves to work on each other's work in whatever means oh. we felt necessary. Okay. Um, so we basically allowed ourselves to totally destroy pieces or totally paint over hours of work, um, or to spend an hour doing a fine little bit of detail on a piece that's had 13 or 50 hours of work on it. Um, 
every touch was important, even if it was destructive or creative. Mm. And we couldn't tell each other no. Wow. <laughs> I've never heard of that before. That sounds really uh, intense. It was intense. It was a lot of fun. And I feel like we made some really interesting things, things that we would never expect to come out of ourselves. Because um, I guess you're, in a way, forcing each other to get out of your safety zone, in a way, or kind of deal with things that come up when you know you manipulate each other's work. Yeah, you have to let go quite a bit. Like, there were many times that one of us would spend endless hours doing something and then the other person would come in and just wipe it away instantly by either painting it white or I've, I smashed a few paintings that I thought would be fun to smash. Um, I mean, are you doing it just for fun? Is there some real reason, like a real creative reason behind it? Or is it just uh, kind of a, on a whim? I mean, it's, there's definitely a creative reason behind it. So sometimes when we would like white out a painting, it was because the painting wasn't going in a direction that the person who currently had it felt like Mm. it could be resolved. And Mm -hmm. so they would then more or less destroy the painting, destroy the direction it was going in to reset it and try to put it back on a different track. Um, and a few of those that did that, we then, that, that were whited out or colored out in some different form. Um, we then uncovered layers and kind of dug back into it and exposed the past work. Oh, and yeah, it made for this really interesting process based, uh, practice. Yeah. We did a, a uh, screen print with the Serie project. And it was exactly that where we, instead of like having our finished piece and being able to do the color separations and move through a six step or 20 step, color process and pull the colors and make the screen screens do what you want. We just went in there and worked with the master screen printer and said, okay, I'm going to do this layer. And then the next person would come in and just cover it and do the next layer. And we, we just kept working that way. I think we did 32 colors and they finally said, okay, we got to stop this. <laughs> and we, we felt like we were getting close and got to this great point. And we, I can't remember if it was in the moment or after the fact, but somewhere along the along the process, we realized that you could hold the print up to light and see all the layers shining through. And it made this really cool um, secondary image to it. Yeah. The finished piece on flat paper just looked like, looked like what it was. It was one of our pieces. But then if you held it up to the light, you could see all the process and layers behind it. It was interesting. And that's what a lot of our work kind of did. It showed that process. So outside of that type of collaboration, what kind of work have you tended to do throughout like you know high school college has it evolved it has quite a bit uh, i was i uh, was heavily influenced by calvin and hobbes okay and other um comics of that nature um i i just grew up drawing a lot of that stuff very okay. very caricature um line or pen like very it felt very like graphic, not graphic novel, but it's more comic strip esque. Yeah. Okay. Um, doing a lot of that stuff. And I explored with oil paints and pastels and stuff that just didn't ever feel right. And I was much more of a graphic, hard edge, black and white thing. And I did color as well, um, colorize some of my stuff. And I, that does seem to be still where a lot of my creative realm is it's just like in this very design designerly um graphic area mm-hmm. and I, I do a lot of collage as well and i i don't know if that came out of my because when i went to the school of visual arts i, I majored in graphic design so okay. i came out of school with this very design focused angle but it it wasn't like here's how you use Adobe Illustrator and here's how you use Photoshop. It was graphic communication, really, which I, I believe every artist basically does. Mm-hmm. It just depends on if you're doing it to become your, to call yourself a designer and serve a client or if you're doing it to be an artist and um, sell your paintings to people. It's, right. It is all graphic communication or visual communication. Um, yeah, so I was, I was very much into, I still am into collage and, most of my creative stuff these days is doodling on my agendas. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess when you have a, a family, it's probably it does make sense to to have a career that's not solely based on creating artwork. Unless you're yeah. famous, I guess, maybe, or live in Dallas or New York, maybe you could pull it off. I don't know. I mean, I so I did get influenced by a few artists who I worked with um, as a young high school and then college student. And they were, it, ran, it went from um, artists who lived in a warehouse themselves and were rather successful in their own careers here in Austin, um, but struggling, to a New York artist who I uh, interned with who had his own apartment, like a few, I think I just hold like, it's a flat. It was like a, a beautiful New York City apartment mm-hmm. um, who ha- was making his living, at least enough so to hire some young college kid to yeah. clean his brushes and hang out with him. Um, they were definitely very influential on me perceiving the art path as the right path. And it was interesting seeing the, the two different ends of the spectrum. Um, someone who was happily living in a warehouse, um, making ends meet, and they were satisfied in their lives. Yeah. But it was not a glamorous lifestyle up to an artist who was in New York City who maybe wasn't that glamorous either, but had, had figured out how to make things work. And it's, it's just a, yeah, it's a, it's a hard, it is ultimately a hard place to find yourself that you have to be creative, not in your practice, but in your lifestyle, mm-hmm. um, which do, they do interact with each other, obviously, but it takes a lot of work to, to make it as an artist. Do you find yourself mentoring a lot of artists? I mean, do people, do artists come to you for advice on how to run their career or just kind of, you know, they have struggles with these issues. I do a fair amount of that personally. And I feel like big medium does a huge amount of that as an organization. I feel like I've be, be, become less of a resource or a mentor in that area of being an artist because I'm, I've shifted away from it and I'm, mm-hmm somewhat vocal about the reasons why I shifted away. And I feel like a lot of artists look at me and just say like, well, screw you. <laughs> and I'm, I mean, they don't say that, but you know, it's, <laughs> it is a, it's a, it's a tough place to, to stand or tough yeah, island to stand on. It's like, I don't make art to sell art. I make art because I believe art is something that you should make and it's, um, shouldn't be driven by the market. And yeah, that's, that is that purist, altruistic, maybe not altruistic, but it is sort of a purist mentality. And I don't even live and breathe that. I make art. Mm-hmm. I have made recent commissions because it was going to make me money. Yeah. And I felt like I needed to make money and did it. Um, so I will make art and I will sell art, but I just, the uh, that's a very different practice than your career and your life being based and predicated on your art, your art being a marketable thing mm-hmm. and selling it. So I feel like when, and that's often what artists want to talk about is how do you make it? How do you make a living as an artist? And I, I, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> are there any, uh, are there any artists that you can think of that you would say would be success stories that came out of, uh, kind of the big media model and East and, Hmm. Or someone that you may be pulled out of obscurity and, and now they're doing quite well for themselves and it was because big medium exists or the, because of the tour. I need to have these things, these names on the top oh, of my okay. head. So like, oh, of course this person. Well, um, there doesn't have to be anybody, but not off the top of my head. I mean, I know I've heard a few people who have said, thank you, big medium for, doing X, Y, and Z, it's helped me take that next step. Um, so I do feel like we're having impact in that way. I just don't have those. You're examples. probably just not getting all that feedback because people aren't, you know. Yeah. I usually hear the complaints more than the oh, okay. <laughs> compliments. <laughs> so I guess thinking about East, um, how did, so Big Medium came 
Sotolitas and then Big Medium and then out of Big Medium came East or how did what's what was that timeline like? In 2002 we moved into our bone warehouse and that quickly turned into us collaborating together. So we quickly had to name ourselves. I mean, all right, we're Sotolitas. That was around uh, yeah towards the end of 2002. Mm-hmm. And then and who was that again? Janet Swick, Joseph Phillips, and myself. Okay. And we quickly started to get to know our neighbors and started to hang out and have exhibitions in our space. We'd clear out. We had these two big bays, and we'd, one was our living side, and one was the studio side, and we'd like clear all of our living room and crap into the, the studio side and turn our living room into a temporary gallery space. And we did three or four of those and started to feel like we were gaining traction with our neighbors and people around us and the community at large. And through doing that enough and talking with other artists who we had no idea were on the east side, but all of a sudden we started to get to know this community, we said, well, let's do a studio tour. Um, and gathered a small group together and said, yeah, the 10 of us can do this. It'll be easy. We'll just pull our money and we'll print something and market it and do some mm-hmm. stuff. And word got out and it grew from the 10 we thought to 28. We're like, wow, that's amazing. And, and we actually had other groups, other long standing artists in the neighborhood, um, come over and sort of watch us and oh. bring, more or less bring us under their wing. It seemed a little contentious at first, but they definitely were, looking to do the best for the situation and we we got helped we were basically advised on the next few rounds of the studio tour um we had a really interesting committee like core committed group of artists who wanted to help it grow and that first year of the tour was 2003 and we foolishly decided to do it again six months later so we did a spring tour um in the spring of 2004 came back around and did it again and November of 2004 and that's when we realized that's crazy we can't do this twice yeah. a year and I think a lot of artists felt the same way but we as the organizers said there's no way we're doing this for free and can't make art because we're organizing this tour so we went to the annual version of East and it has stayed that way we've tweaked it a little bit in terms of how long it is it's two weekends now and the categories of how artists can get involved but Really, we just have sort of settled on pretty much a core model and kept that going, and it's just grown drastically. And as it has grown, we, as the artists who are trying to make art and be on the tour, had to shift our roles. And so in 2007, we finally incorporated as a nonprofit and turned into big medium. Okay. So the collaborative group Solidus formed first, then East came out of that, and then we formed big medium to to run what the studio tours were at the time and till now and future, um, but also to do our gallery programming and our studio spaces that we had developed at Bolm. Yeah. So it's very similar to what we are now. I mean, what we didn't, what we formed under big medium in 2007 is very much that almost same platform as what we are today with more staff and expertise. Um, the Texas biennial started in 2005 with that separate group, Arturo Palacios, John Lawrence, me, Joseph, and Jana, and was on a separate track running alongside, parallel to Big Medium. And in 2007, Arturo Palacios, or a little bit after 2007 biennial, he shifted gears, moved his job to Houston to start Art Palace Gallery. He had done that here in Austin for a few years, and then he shifted and moved Art Palace to Houston. Mm-hmm. And he was very much the driving force behind the biennial at the time. When he did that, basically said, you know, I'm now a commercial gallerist and I really need to shift gears and um, and the biennial was left kind of in our hands and so we just folded it into big medium and it became one of our programs in 2009, pretty much. So in the beginnings of East, I mean, were you still producing these catalogs? I mean, how did a lot of that evolve, kind of like the uh, public face of it as far as like maps and catalogs and... yeah. So using that design, the design skills I learned at art yeah. school, and, and that was a decision. I was like, I should do something that's going to be lucrative and I can get out of school and get a job. Um, I got out of school and started doing design work for clients and hated it instantly oh. and realized very quickly, like that is not ever going to happen. I can't, 
I'm, a, I'm way too much of an artist than I am a designer. And I would not want someone to tell me to change the way my painting looks. And I have a hard time when they say change the way your design looks because this is better and you know it's not better. But you have to because they're paying you. So yeah. So the, like the commissions that you mentioned earlier, those are completely – that's up to whatever you want to do? For the most part, yeah. I, you know, if, they're, if they want me to do something crazy – outside of my comfort zone and something that I would not, not do, I probably would say no, unless I'm like really hurting yeah. for money. Okay. But mostly, no, I'll, I'll stick to the high road. I would never do that. I never. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, getting out of school and not wanting to get into, I did some freelance design enough to say like, I cannot design for a client. When the studio tour rolled around, it was just like this opportunity. I was like, Oh boy, now I get to use my design skills. And spent a little time like giving Joseph and Jana a little bit of the tools to design. And we all just like kept our collaborative practice going in the design realm and started designing all the materials for the studio tours. So the first one was a little trifold brochure that had a map with all 28 artists listed on it. Um, the next one we did, we quickly saw enough growth to warrant a larger publication. So it went from 28 to I think 50. We're like, okay, now we need something bigger. So we produced a little, six by nine staple bound catalog images and you know growing basically the the digital or the print presence um and that that's still basically what we do we produce a catalog we produce a map um but the the thing the catalog has changed drastically over the years i think so has our design sensibility and um execution i think we've gotten a lot better and now that we have the west austin studio tour we have a fun opportunity to play with the two sides of the year fall uh, and yeah. spring and then the two sides of the city and so we can develop cool design concepts and themes around that what do you feel like you've personally gained from being a part of the east austin studio tour all these years this is back to my don't sell art mantra <laughs> no it's not but i i feel like it's the people it's a network I've certainly sold a little bit of art on the tour, but it's, I think the most impactful thing is being on the tour and connecting with fellow artists so that you can have conversations about your work because you can't make art in a bubble. Um, you need to be out and engaged and talk to people and artists have a very different perspective. You have to be in your industry talking about what you do, but then you also have to be out of your industry. You have to be in the general public sphere Hmm. to talk with them about what you do because it's one thing for a bunch of insiders to be like yeah that looks great and then you take it out in the world and no one can appreciate it because it's myopic or too obtuse for someone to really get and that's what i think the studio tour has done a great job of is providing a very comfortable open environment for people to come in and say hey wow i like that and this is why. And there's no art. There is art speak, but you don't have to be able to to speak art speak. You can just show up and say, I like that, or I don't like that, or provide criticism or feedback um, in the moment. It is still tough to do as an audience member to an artist, but I think if the artists are open and welcoming, they can, they can draw out some of that, I think essential commentary that they, they need to help grow their practice and what they do. Yeah, it seems like um, having the tour once a year and artists know that hundreds or thousands of people might be coming through their studio, they have to probably put some thought into how am I going to answer these questions that people might have about my work? What does it mean or why am I doing it? Or uh, It seems like that would be very useful. Yeah, not only does it does um, do those conversations help change your art but they do make you better at talking about what you do and why you do it um which is a key part of being an artist you have to market yourself you have to be able to say i make this stuff for this reason or i make this stuff and this is me and say it in a in a really clean and easy story that people want to hear and like to hear and that that helps inform people's buying habits i think um they very often want to know more about the artist and want to have that story so that if they buy your work and put it on the wall and their friends come over, they're like, Oh yeah, this is this weird artist who does this. And <laughs> I mean, it's a story. It's a, that's what you're basically in a lot of ways selling. 
Yeah. Why do, why do you think, um, I mean, I've heard this so much over the years, like artists complain about that one part of having to sell themselves or sell their work. That's the one of the most painful parts of it, being an artist is figuring out how to sell yourself or market yourself. And, and these days with so much, uh, you know, everything online and social media, it's a lot of, I mean, even the other day someone was saying it's like a half of their or a quarter of their time they're making art and the rest of the time they're on their computer, you know, uh, trying to figure out how to sell it or market themselves or, and yeah, a lot of them are pained by that. I think. Yeah. I certainly am or was more so. And maybe that's why for me, it was a lot easier to sell my work as in a collaborative group. I'm a few degrees removed from that. Look at me, buy my art. This is all about me. Um, I could stand up there with my two other co-collaborators and we could talk about our art and talk about that thing that's sort of removed from me. And maybe as intro primarily or stereotypically introverted people, artists don't like to talk about themselves that much. Don't want to say, come buy my art and I'm a ama- Cause you basically are selling like I make good stuff, buy it from me. And that, I think that's not in everyone's nature to, to go out and say that to the degree that you kind of have yeah. to, to, to be successful. I, I mean, kind of along with that is, um, pricing art too. I think that's a really challenging thing too. Totally. And it's all integrated in that same basic concept is you have value as an artist and you have to be able to talk about your value. So it's your story. It's, it's what you do and why it's important. And then actually put, value to it and say it's important and it costs a thousand dollars um that that valuation is really hard really hard to do i mean i I feel like pricing your art is the same thing as just talking about your art Mm -hmm. there are these key components that are very much focused on you and this thing that you create and they become a hard it's a hard concept to to put out there and to continue, I am, I am speaking as a more or less introvert. Yeah. Someone who does not like to just get out there and say, look at me, look at me, buy my art, $1,000. Um, so there's, there's that side of it. But then also on the, the other side or a other side of valuing and pricing art is that it's not terribly clear. Like we don't have a standard. Mm-hmm. There are very few standards for how to price art. Um, in Austin and I think globally as well. And a lot, most of those standards just come out of the gallery system. And what we're seeing now is a shift away from the gallery system. So more and more artists are having to market themselves and talk about themselves and do this whole other business side that the galleries basically were doing, and which is why they would get such a high commission. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you like it or not, they were doing the business side so you could be an artist. And now as we, I think, see at least nationally but maybe globally a trend shifting away from some of the gallery models that have been existing in existence forever we're seeing more of those artists step into that realm and trying to figure out okay now i have to market myself now i have to price my own work and those aren't tools or or standards that we have in place now so we're kind of building not totally from scratch but we're building kind of trying to rebuild that that area for ourselves do you have any advice for people for artists around that or do you think there are any good resources to kind of tackle some of those challenges i'm actually working on one right now oh okay yes i so i was on the board of generous art and i think it's an interesting conversation topic and model that we have actually deviated from drastically so generous art was started by jennifer chenoweth Mm -hmm. and the basic model was that it would provide an opportunity for artists to show their work on an online platform primarily, but occasionally through events in the public world to sell work. And the artist would receive 50%. A nonprofit of your choice would receive 30% and generous art would receive 20 for operational expense. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's generous because you're buying art and then being philanthropic in the same action. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we as the board eventually decided that, that was not the best thing. I mean, it, I feel like if you want to be generous to art, you should give more money to the artists. Ah, right. And not necessarily, not necessarily tie art buying to supporting your favorite 
humane society chapter. Yeah. It, it just needs to be, I think we need to decouple those two concepts. Yeah. If you want to donate to the humane society, do it on your own. Yeah. Kind go of. ahead and donate. And there's been this long standing relationship between art and nonprofits or philanthropy mm-hmm. where artists are asked or made or cajoled into giving to support some fundraising effort and the artists do it for free. They give their, they donate their works and they get very little out of it except, except exposure and promotion, which we know right. is not worthless, but you can't eat it and you can't pay your bills with it. So how often should we and can we continue to show our work for free? Right. So we shifted that model <clears throat> to sort of address that, but also address bigger picture issues. And we just recently unveiled the new thing it's going to be called creative standard and it's going to actually try to create standards around pricing art um ethical and business standards for artists one of which is do should you show your art for free and how can you like actually drill into that whole sphere and say when is it right to show your art for free and when should you require a corporation who has a lobby who wants free decoration to pay you to show their art in there i mean i think there's areas that we can really define standards for practice that would be best serving to the artists. The issue is making sure we all abide by them and follow them because as big medium, I've very often been able to say no to corporations by saying yes. And they say, Hey, big medium, will you come and um, find some artists to show in our gallery, in our lobby space? And I say, yes, of course, but you need to pay big medium a consulting fee and you need, you need to pay the artist some kind of rental fee or buy their work outright. Yeah. One, and they say, oh, okay, we'll get back to you. And they never do because they can go to the other arts group around the corner or an artist around the corner and say, hey, will you do this? And they say yes. Because so it's about it, educating everyone, getting everyone on the same page so that these outside entities, corporations, are getting the same message from everyone. Right. And so then they change their behavior and they understand that uh, these people have value, their time has value, their work has value. It's not just... We're not just going to use them. Right. And then I think that will help us understand how to value our own work and market ourselves. And I believe it's sort of like one of those foundational shifts that not only Austin, I think it could, it's a global concept. Um, but definitely here in Austin, we needed to shift our thinking around how we act as artists. Because, you know, the state and the county and the city are like, you're a business, pay your business tax, pay your franchise tax pay all these things like act like a business and then on a lot of ways we don't internally or community wise like think of ourselves as a business yeah so where when will this resource be available or where would you find it we just rolled it out over the weekend oh wow Um, yeah and we're just now trying to figure out how to make it the most effective it's really one of the key, so the, the, the three main tenets are to create these standards around art, um, to provide a digital hub of all the resources and opportunities that are out there in Austin, because there's this const, there's a lot happening and there's a lot of opportunities. Uh, there's a lot of professional development workshops, a lot of, um, grant opportunities. It's just, there's no one place where they're, and they would be vetted. I'm assuming to some, some degree. Some. I mean, it would be, it would be, I mean, a lot of this comes from the Austin Creative Alliance, the City of Austin's Cultural Arts Division, uh, the Parks and Rec Department has a, a whole array of stuff that I didn't even know about until oh, recently. Wow. Um, there are opportunities, and they are coming from pre-vetted, already recognized resources. They're just not under one roof. Mm. Um, so we want to provide those standards, this digital hub, and then to basically convene regularly. Um, it's networking at its core, but we're calling it convening and it's just getting the creative sector or the artists together to have conversations and to continually discuss what is the issue with the hopes that we can move the needle in some way past some of these issues. Yeah. Um, but no, like I certainly know that, um, pricing of your art or fair valuation um, 
is needed. We need to we need to have better understanding so the audience can say like, hey, that person's art is priced in a way that makes sense because they they have a maybe it's a stamp of creative standard or maybe there's some way yeah. to show that this has been valued by a, or set at a right, at a proper standard. Um, I think we we could easily move on from that topic that keeps coming up, saying like, how do you price your art? And I, I would love to, it will still be a, a conversation topic and it will still be, because part of it is subjective and you have to say how many shows have you had and where do you yeah. fit into the spectrum? But the big sort of like, I don't even know where to begin questions should get changed pretty, I would hope pretty quickly. So then we keep convening and talking about well, what's the next issue. We're not going to solve like affordability of Austin, stuff like that. Yeah. But we certainly can look at like what our we're basically calling ourselves a professional association so we can gather up and say, what are some needs our professional association have? Um, like if you don't have a standard contract in place to do a commission with a corporate entity that wants to commission a massive thing, like we could have some pretty standard contracts that have been vetted by lawyers in place. That we and even advisors too. Advisors. Yeah. I think that'd be a great idea. Wow. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a, I mean, you said it just, it was just rolled out. Is there a website or, or is it not quite public yet? It's public. I mean, it's creativestandard.org. Okay. And it's pretty barren at the moment. Okay. Okay. Cause we, we are looking, we're going to look real heavily towards the community to help us decide like what standards should we prioritize? Cause there's a lot Yeah. and we need to make sure we're focusing our efforts on the right ones first. Um, and then that convening, so the convening is, is going to be the driving thing behind, let's figure out what are the most important standards to create and what are the most, what are the most helpful resources for us to dig into. I mean, we, we want the digital hub to be a comprehensive resource, um, but it's going to take us a while to get that up to speed. So mm-hmm. we're going to try to focus on some key ones. Like the cultural arts funding is a super key one. And I think most people know about it, but we need to figure out how to identify all those opportunities around that and yeah, roll that out. So what would someone do an artist in Austin do to participate in this or to contribute going forward? Just wait for the next convening. Uh, Yeah, I think so. We're, we're still as the organization trying to figure out, um, it's going to be a membership organization and it's probably going to have fees associated with it Mm -hmm. and they're probably going to be minimal, but there's so many organizations who are asking for fees for artists. We're trying to see if there's ways to bundle it so that we can, maybe there's one fee that you pay and you can be associated with a bunch of different service based organizations. Um, we also have to be sensitive to those organizations and make sure we're not cannibalizing revenue streams that they were expecting. Mm but we also don't want to have artists pay like little fees here and here and all over the place until you've, cause that's, that's a big concern is like you, it, are you getting the service that's worth your f- membership fee? Yeah. And so until we get to that point of knowing like how these, how you can call yourself a member of creative standard or however that's going to look, um, we're basically hoping just to have artists stay involved and to come and meet with us and talk with us and even help drive that conversation around like what makes sense for a fee-based entity or a service. Yeah. Membership fee-based entity. Cause it's, it's hard. We have to generate revenue somehow and it's not always on the backs of artists, but there does also have to be some skin in the game. And I mean, that's why we hope East is going to, you know, keep going on forever, but we've never wanted to ever have the tour be totally free for artists. Cause you have to pay a little bit to get involved. It's basically co-marketing mm-hmm. and we, we all have to chip in to help produce those catalogs and help pay big medium staff and do these things to make it happen. Same thing with creative standard. We feel like we all need to work together to help create these standards and pay in and help build the system, build basically the, the industry standards. Yeah. It sounds like wonderful potential there. And I think it's much needed, a much needed resource. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear you're working on that. Um, so I guess um, as far as East goes this year, is there anything about 
East this year that's different? And kind of how do you, do you see anything changing in the future or how it might evolve? Yes, the, the, we are, the changes, we keep seeing change from year to year. And they're, they're little bitty mechanical things that we change on our end. Um, but nothing major, nothing that's really going to drastically affect, I think, the artist experience or the tour goers experience. Is there anything you're excited about this year that's new or different? So one of the the bigger changes that we are not terribly concerned about, but we're aware of and want to keep our eye on, is that our numbers don't change that much. We still have a whopping 500-plus artists this year. Mm-hmm. But the number of newcomers has increased drastically, which means the number of returning artists has dr- decreased an equally drastic amount. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so I'm excited about all the new artists who are coming on the tour. Um but the the concerning part is like why are artists not returning? And certainly taking a year off or taking a break is valid, and people do it, and we want to encourage that. Um, but are they leaving forever, or are they having to shift out of the city because of affordability, or off the east side because of affordability? Um, something that reinforces that line of thinking is that we're having fewer studio spaces participate on the tour and more temporary exhibitions, more temporary pop-ups that mm-hmm. happen on the tour, which does seem to play into that same trend of uh, an issue around affordability and whether they can keep their space here year round or if they can just show up and pop up. Um, there still are a lot of exciting things that are happening with those pop-up exhibitions, but it's tough because the, the core of the studio tour is a studio. I mean, it's yeah. in, in the name and yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's an essential part of it because back to earlier on in a conversation, it's, it is so much easier to go and have a conversation with an artist in a studio space when it's not a, a white walled gallery and temporary exhibitions can have a much less white box feel than a gallery, but they still, it's still a space where you put your art on the wall and there's, I, I feel like there's nothing worse than walking into a space and having a bunch of artists stare you down and like, come look at my art. Yeah. Like standing in, like sort of like protecting their art, standing in front of it. And it's like, that's not how you have conversation. I think the studio is like this opportunity to welcome someone into your home more or less or your yeah. studio. It's this, it is your place. And you're saying, come into my place. Um, and you, it's more warm. There's usually a more clutter. I mean, I mind's always cluttered full of crap but yeah i think other artists also because you're working there yeah you're working there and it just has a different feel than than a gallery or a temporary space um so yeah that's that is like the big shifts that are happening and again i'm excited about a lot of the new stuff that's happening on the tour um my brain is too fried from doing the catalog very recently <laughs> to actually have any one in mind. It's just okay. this one big mushy blob. But All right. yeah, those are the big themes that we're seeing and experiencing right now. Yeah. What about the future of East, if anything? Or is it, I mean, I'm sure getting ready for the current one, it's probably hard to think about the future too much. Well, typically, yes. We have a really hard time thinking about the future while we're head down trying to put out fires and start other fires. But I have been trying to get my head up and out of the minutia to be able to look down the road. And we are thinking about the future. And one thing that I guess the only thing we, we want to see East happen and continue to happen. And I think the one thing that we're trying to really focus on is back to the artists Mm-hmm. And maybe this is now going to potentially go against what I just said about the studio being a core focus of the tour, but we feel like the artists um, need to be a little bit more front row center because there's, there's, it feels like there's a little bit too much of a pop up thing or a activation where it's a lot of artists in one space, and we would I think we'd rather have it be focused on individual artists mm-hmm. so you can say that i'm an artist on the tour and it's a very clean line of engagement you can say i'm number three because number three is the third artist on the list and it's shay little and i don't know there's a lot of um i feel like there's a lot of confusion in the the organizational 
taxonomy that we've cr- we have created for um, participants on the tour, and we want to streamline that a lot more. And it feels like shifting away from all these different categories and just having artists. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's just me trying to simplify my own work. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No, no major changes. It's it seems like it's going to for the for, I think foreseeable future. We're keeping it staying the course and keeping it the way it is. All right. Well, thanks for all your hard work and I I look forward to a great East for everyone. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. And please feel free to share any feedback you might have by going to the contact page at austinarttalk.com. If you have any suggestions for guests or subjects you would like covered or addressed, please let me know. All the best to you and take care.